Today for our scripture reading as we gather together for the exhortation from God's Word, uh, we'll be looking at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And I noticed a neat shortcut for those of you that are lazy. It's printed out in the bulletin in the opening pages. So, But we are going to be looking through Ephesians a bit. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. Give careful attention to God's word. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks for this special time, the time that we unpack your word, when we look into it and find what creation cannot tell us, that it tells us that Jesus loves me. Father, we pray that that message to us would be strong and clear today, that we would know that we have a mighty Redeemer who calls us to go out into a world and show what that kingdom is like by our words and works. Hear us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Children, I would like you to think for a moment about trains, that fascinating human accomplishment whereby tons and tons of cargo are moved with very little energy. Uh, now, as you think about a train, there's components. There's a locomotive, and then there's carts with people, or maybe it has vegetables, onions, coal, who knows what. And then at the end, what is the final car on a train, kids? The caboose. Okay. Now, imagine that you are the conductor, I believe that's the proper train term, and you're walking up to the train, and you are going to make the train go. Let's imagine you walk up to the caboose, and you hop in there, I don't know, you, you toy around with something, and you expect the caboose and the rest of the train to move. Will the train move? No. Where do you need to go if you want the train to move? The coffee cart. That's where I would go if you want the cart to move, I would go find the coffee cart. But lo and behold, three cups in, the cart's not moving. The coffee cart is of no avail. Where do you go if you want the train to move? Not that coffee cart. The engine, the locomotive, the thing that has the power to pull, right? It's that front one that has all the power, all that massive torque through I don't know, a nice hybrid electric diesel engine. It's amazing. That's what has the power to move the train. It's not the caboose. It's not the onions. It's not even the coffee cart. Well, that locomotive has the ability to pull a great deal of weight, but it's not intended to move its weight alone. It moves different carts to different transportation destinations. And it does all of that because at the back of that locomotive, there's like a hook and there's a pin, there's a link pin. 
something connecting the locomotive with everything else that follows, okay? Well, all of these carts, whether they are full of onions or coal or coffee or cabooses, they're absolutely impotent to move themselves. They don't have the power to move themselves. It doesn't happen, okay? You could get in every one of those carts and push buttons and touch things and it's not going to move. It just won't. However, the locomotive can deliver all of these goods to the betterment and enjoyment of human culture. I just want you to see today that it's the locomotive alone that enables motion for the train, but yet the train follows the locomotive exactly where it goes. Now, what does this have to do with Ephesians 4, 1 through 6? I submit to you today in our passage that what we see is the relationship between who we are as believers and how we're empowered to live for the glory of God, okay? It's talking about the relationship between doctrine, that is what we believe about God and things, and life, how we live because of what we believe about God and things. This passage that we see today sets before us the relationship between the gospel of Jesus Christ, which empowers us for life, and the life that must follow from those that confess this gospel. This relationship between who we are and what we are to do is a staple item in Paul's writings. And we'll just take a little detour for a minute and consider how normal this is for Paul. The fancy theological word is the indicative and the imperative, but just see what he does here. Paul, in the book of Romans, in chapters 1 through 11, he unpacks what God has done for sinners like you and I. And then in chapters 12 through 16, he focuses on because we're redeemed, because we're called the people of God, because we've been given a new nature, this is how you must live, okay? The link pin for the argument in Romans is this, Romans 12, 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Paul does not open the book of Romans with, hey, serve God as you are. No. Eleven chapters in, he says, because of the mighty work God has done in making you a new creature in Christ, seating you in the heavenlies, therefore you're called to this action. Now, Paul structures the relationship between what we are to believe and what we are to do in the same way in Ephesians. We notice in Ephesians that it begins by stating that apart from Christ, we're all dead in sins and trespasses, subject to Satan, and focused on the passions of the flesh. That's up to Ephesians 2-ish. But now, through faith in Christ, it says, you believers are righteous and you're seated in heaven. That is what it says about you. That is indicating what is true of you as you cling to Christ by faith. Ephesians ends, however, with this. The image of our feet firmly established on the earth called upon to fight the world, the flesh, and the devil. Specifically, in Ephesians 6, it's talking about putting on the whole armor of God to fight Satan. And to realize that the battle that we wage is not with tanks and, tanks and guns and bombs, or even with your neighbor so much, but about spiritual realities. Now, this progression from who we are, the heavenly seated sons of God, to what we are to do, fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil, is seen clearly in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. And as Protestants, we love to quote this. But here, verse 10. 
For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Now, this quick survey of some of the Pauline corpus, some of Paul's writings in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 in particular, it serves as a good warning for us from our triune God. And within the history of the church, there tends to be an error to overemphasize one thing or another. By the way, it's a good argument for why we should preach through books of the Bible so that we are not tempted to choose our hobby horses. Uh, some of you might know, we spent the last 10 days or so in Knoxville, Tennessee, and we visited a great store. It's called Tractor Supply Co. I had, no, I had no idea such things existed. There was a young preacher man, and he was talking like, what should I preach? Should I preach this and that? And I, I was just listening to him. And uh, I said, son, how about you preach the text? And he didn't know what that meant, so I had to unpack that a little. But we need to preach the text. Because, friends, there's going to be some uncomfortable things there for us. But Paul says, I did not withhold from you the whole counsel of God, right? If you attend a church where they're hopping around the Bible all the time, preaching whatever's new and fancy, uh, there's a good chance you're getting emaciated. You're not getting a diet of God's Word. You're getting a diet of whatever Pastor Joe or whoever he is uh, happens to think is good that week. I'm sure Joe's a good guy. Everybody's nice, right? But <laughs> that doesn't mean they have your best interests in mind. Well, this survey of uh, Paul's writings in Ephesians and elsewhere, it serves as a good warning. And the warning is this. We must be created in Christ before we can proceed to talk about good works. Works acceptable to God are only accomplished by one that's created for that task. To speak of good works apart from our new nature in Christ is like trying to move a train by the caboose. It's not going to happen. With our new nature in mind, however, Paul is calling us to manifest every spiritual blessing that Christ has lavished upon us. He's calling us to be what we are. We must not imagine for a moment that Paul picked up this sort of uh, approach through a motivational speaking class. It's not because Paul did a poll and he decided that it's most effective to play on people's psyche and get the desired results. No, no. It's God's purpose that right doctrine leads to right life. They are inseparable. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, number three, encapsulates this biblical pattern. And the question, of course, is what do the Scriptures principally teach? The Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. There's a relationship between what we believe and what we do. There's that link pin, that therefore in the text. Thus, we cannot read, let's get specific here, we can't read Ephesians 4 through 6 apart from 1 through 3. We can't speak about the ought of the Christian faith in terms of morality apart from the is of who we are as God's recreated image bearers who confess that Jesus is Lord. So we can't preach the imperative. If your church tells you what to do, what to do, what to do, apart from what has been done for you, 
Well, that's hopeless. On the other hand, we can't read chapter 1, verses, uh, ch- chapter 1 through 3, apart from chapters 4 through 6. We can't wax eloquently about the redemption that Christ has accomplished for us and applied it to us without talking about the very real call to walk as a Christian. Either of these are errors, and it's an impoverishment of what it means to be a Christian. As we move from these general considerations and into what Paul is calling us to do in light of our new natures, we're going to look at our text today in three points, and uh, I'll somewhat follow the uh, outline that's in your bulletin. So we're going to look at three points. Uh, First point is going to be, therefore, walk worthy. Second point, can we walk worthy? And third, how do we walk worthily? We'll look at some general and specific applications of that. So our first point, Paul says in Ephesians 4.1, Therefore I, the prison of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. This therefore in 4.1 unites Paul's proclamation of the gospel and who we are by its power to his exhortation to walk in accordance with our call. Ephesians 4.1 is the link pin between the gospel and our works that flow from our new natures as we believe in the gospel. This therefore has the thrust of a conclusion to a previous argument. What argument? The argument from 1 through 3, chapters 1 through 3 in Ephesians. It's a call to live life, that is walk, in light of God's graciousness as evidenced in chapters 1 and 2. This is made explicit by the Apostle's reference to our calling in 4.1. Therefore, walk in a manner worthy of your calling, which reaches way back into 1.18. 1.18 says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. So with chapters 1 and 2 of Ephesians in mind, Paul in 4.1 implores us, admonishes us, exhorts us to walk in a manner worthy of our call. Paul urges this on us, for he knows this is not something contrary to your new nature. It would be a cruel game indeed if Paul thought that we were still dead in our sins and transgressions as people who've been made alive in Christ. It would be a cruel game indeed if he thought that we were still dead in our transgressions and sins, yet still beckons us to somehow get our stinking carcass up and walk in a manner worthy. It would be like God telling Ezekiel to call the valley of dry bones up, but God goes ahead and says, well, Ezekiel, I'm going to not provide my spirit, right? Ezekiel would be calling and nothing would happen case of sitting in the back of a caboose and hoping to move the train. No, it's for you who were once far off, you who were without hope and without God in the world, God has made you alive in Christ. He's made you his very own children who are to receive a glorious inheritance. It is to you, to God's redeemed children, that this call has come. It's because of who you are that Paul is so excited in his admonition. Paul knows that those who are being built up into a spiritual temple by the Spirit will respond. Calling us to action is only fitting for creatures designed for every good work. We're therefore called to be what he has made us to be in Christ. Now this brings us to our second point. Namely, can I, a human who trusts in Christ, 
one who struggles with sin, one who repents daily, can I walk worthily? Can I walk worthy? Can we walk worthy? That's what we're looking at. It's clear that Paul believes we can, but for the sake of the tender-hearted, we must venture into some possible misunderstandings here. Paul is not suggesting that the ought equals the can. I think that was Kant. I don't remember the philosopher. But just because God commands something doesn't mean that we necessarily can do it. There was a day in the garden, in the cool of the day, when we could. But that day is gone. (laughs) That day is past. The fact is, the only thing we can do apart from God the Holy Spirit is sin. Okay? We need to look at some possible misunderstandings here. Some might ask, but I thought the text said that I was dead in sins and transgressions and unable to do anything good towards God. I thought that even now, as 4.13 says in Ephesians, that even as Christians were unfinished products. 4.13 says, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. If I'm still a work in progress, how can I be considered worthy to walk worthy? And these are valid points. And I want us to consider this, especially for the tender in heart. We need to take note of what the Bible means when it says worthy in 4.1. Does walk worthy mean that we are walking with some uh, worth that is baked into the cake of our being, some natural power that we have? Is it about merit? The Webster's Third New International Dictionary gives the following possible definition of worthy. Having worth, value, or importance. Merit, right? Now, if that's how we understand this word worthy here in Ephesians 4.1, then I'm talking to you. If you think that walking worthy has to do with some personal merit that you have worked up in your prayer closet or that you've been working really hard for, well, that'll be quite a downer for you. How will you ever know that you're worthy if that's the game that you're playing? Are you ever going to measure up? Should you try harder? Should you give up? Well, I'm here to tell you, please don't. The King James Version and the NIV and other translations could give a foothold for such an interpretation where you're thinking about meritorious worth. These, uh, the, the way those texts read is this, Live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Like, look what God's done for you now. You better act just right or you're, like, awful, right? Um, From earlier on in Ephesians, we've seen that such worthiness is not found in us. And even as the redeemed of God, that sort of meritorious worth is not ours. Any kind of absolute worthiness that involves our own worth, value, goodness, or whatever, it's not helpful here. And it's not what the apostle envisaged. The word for worthy here is an adverb, and it's best rendered in a matter worthy of or worthily. This is how the NSB and the ASV translate this verse. New American Standard Bible and the American Standard Version. Uh, Walk in a manner worthy. I beseech you to walk worthily of the calling which you received. Therefore, it's not referring to worth in the sense of self-worth or self-value. This call to walk worthily is not a jump-starting of the covenant of works all over again. No, it's merely a sign of change. It's a sign which shows that we are under construction. So this leads us to the, the question, can we walk worthily? Yes. 
We remember that in Ephesians 2.2, we had walked in accordance with this world and the spirit of this world, namely Satan, as we disobeyed. God has made those same corpses, namely us, alive in Christ, 2.5, together with Christ, and he's now building you up into a holy temple in which his spirit dwells and abides. Now, rather than walk in accordance with this world and its spirit, <coughs> we walk in accordance with our new world and the Holy Spirit in new obedience. We can walk in accordance with heaven and the Spirit because the Spirit has taken Christ's merits and applied them, imputed them to us. Our life now is a heavenly life. Our worth is grounded in heaven above in Jesus, and it's from there that we receive the nourishment for obedience the nourishment for walking worthily now. Nothing of this age, what Paul calls in other letters this present evil age, can render the obedience that God demands. Nobody is worthy in the absolute sense, of course, except Christ. But we can walk worthily by God's strength. We can walk worthily because it's God who is at work in you, both to will and work for his good pleasure. So therefore, walk worthily of the calling which you have been called. Now we've seen that we're called to walk worthily and that we're able to walk worthily of the calling we received as we're found in our Savior. And this brings us to our third point. Third point is how. How do we walk worthily then? We're going to go ahead and unpack this. In 4.2, we're going to see how Paul begins to generally unpack his command to walk worthily of the calling which we received. And then later we'll look at it a little bit more specifically. 4.2. Walk worthily of the calling with which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Now, much could and indeed should be said about each of these virtues individually. But for our time together today, we need to just see that these qualities, these virtues are personified in Jesus, the Son of God. Humility. Philippians 2 tells us that Christ is ultimately the humble one, condescending from heaven to a feed trough. Philippians 2.5, have this attitude in yourselves, which also was in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We use the word humble and humility a good bit, but you're not going to find a better definition than the person of our Savior in terms of from where he came to where he went. Gentleness. Jesus is the model for gentleness, as he is the one who called us to take his yoke upon us. And why does he tell us to take his yoke upon us? He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Gentleness is personified in Jesus. Patience. Our Lord is patient. 1 Timothy 1.15. Yet for this reason... I found mercy, and this is Paul who persecuted the church, who approved the murdering of Christians, right? Who wanted the Christian message to become extinct, 
who really wanted to commit deicide, wanted to kill God because he couldn't understand it. His eyes were blinded. Paul says this, For this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Beloved in the Lord Jesus, if you are sitting here today and you're not sure that you uh, get the Christian message or appreciate it or believe it, know that God is patient. If he's patient with Paul, he's patient with you. But today is the day of salvation. Call on the Lord. Also, it says, bearing with one another in love. Romans 2.4, God bears with us in love. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Now, not only are these virtues displayed in perfection in Jesus, but by God's good design, they're displayed in you. Not equally, not ontically, not wrapped up in your being. We don't show these because we were born that way. No, it's because we've been born again to be that way. Not only are they displayed in perfection in Jesus, they're displayed in us. The Spirit has taken what is Christ's, and he's applied it to us. Christ is the one righteous man, as Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15. He is the second Adam who fulfilled the covenant of works on behalf of us who believe. And he grants unto us the benefits of his labor. It's the Spirit that bestows these benefits to us and on us. These benefits of Christ are evidences of the Spirit's work in our lives. Notice for a moment the similarities between the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians and this list of virtues that we see in Ephesians 4.2. Fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Okay, so there's some overlap between this list of virtues in the fruit of the Spirit uh, in Galatians 5 and our text in Ephesians 4.2, love, patience, gentleness. In our calling to externally live out what is true of us internally, we are therefore called to participate in Christ's life. We're told that we already participate in the glory in the heavenlies, especially on the Lord's Day. Ephesians 2.6 says that we are seated in the heavenlies with Christ. In some sense, can't wrap my, round, my mind around it, but in some sense, we participate in heavenly realities. We participate in heavenly bread as the sacraments are served as we see the uh, people baptized, etc., We see something true and new. Well, in calling us to externally live out our lives, uh, of, I'm repeating myself. We do participate in heavenly glory in some way, especially here as we hear God's word preached and proclaimed as we are reminded of true realities that we forget day by day. But we're also called not only to participate in the glory of the heavenlies, we're also called to participate in his sufferings. Philippians 1.29 says, For to you it's been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. However, we can't just say that we will suffer with him and leave it at that. We must suffer with him because of what? As Christians, why do you suffer if you are faithfully living for the Lord Jesus Christ? 
If your confession is Jesus is Lord, I am not. Jesus is Lord, you are not. Jesus is Lord, all other lords are not. If you're making that confession, it's going to be uncomfortable at points. We must suffer with him because we are participating in his life. Namely, we participate in his morality, right? We will suffer because we live like Jesus. When you won't do certain things, when they're asking you to sign this, do that, sell this, take that, right? Sometimes that is a cause for suffering because you are living like Christ in terms of his morality. We will suffer because we live like Jesus. The Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3.12 to a young preacher man, he says to Timothy, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, how do we walk worthily? We participate in Christ's moral life. We look at Christ as a moral example. Now, this isn't to deny that we don't participate in the blessings that Christ achieved as our head. No. Earlier in the epistle, Paul spelled out how we have participated in Christ's exaltation in a measure. And now we're called to participate in his humiliation. This participation in Christ's life, in particular his morality, is the reason why Paul is so bold to mention his chains in verse 1. Look at 4.1. Therefore I, a prisoner of the Lord. What is he talking about? Why is he mentioning the fact that he's imprisoned? Is he trying to get some tears out of these folks? Is he trying, like sometimes many of our missionaries might do, I'm really serving the Lord, so sorry about you guys who kind of suck. Um, no, he is getting in their face with this reality. And it's not a boast. It's not to make people feel sorry for him. It's not trying to cough up more money for the old man on his missionary journeys. No. Many commentators actually suggest that Paul is here scheming as an old man to use his chains as leverage to cow the Ephesians into action. Beloved, I submit to you that nothing could be further from the truth. Are we to believe that Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, the one who calls us to imitate him as he imitates Christ, are we to believe that he's merely grandstanding for attention? No. Paul mentions his chains here, not as a means of getting more stuff out of his support, but as proof that he himself is walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which he's been called. Participating in the life of Christ is something that Paul gets. Consider for a moment that odd passage in Romans 9 where Paul says, If I, uh, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, Israel, those of my own race. What is he doing here? Do, does Paul have like any thought that in terms of the nature of his being, he could somehow be cut off and benefit Israel? No, he's not stupid. He knows that Christ alone is the only one that can do that. But here he is saying, if I could do it, I would. Why is that? It's because Paul gets what participating in the life of Christ is like. He's willing to suffer. He's willing to die for the other. Now again, of course, Paul realizes that he does not have it in the nature of being gas tank, as it were, to pay off such things. He couldn't die for Israel. But Paul, in wishing to be cut off for his people's sake, demonstrates that he has the mind of Christ. 
The gospel has taken root in Paul's very heart of hearts, and this is what the life of one who walks worthily can look like. He loves God in such a way that he loves his neighbor himself, even to the point of causing himself harm. Now, this isn't an argument for self-harm, mind you. He loves God's people in such a way that he loves his neighbor as himself, even if he must suffer for their good. Now, thus far, we've looked at what we are called to do as we walk worthily in general terms. Namely, imitate Christ in his moral excellency. Now, turn with me to chapter 4, verse 3, and we'll finish the sentence that was begun in 4.1. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk worthily of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We're admonished by God's apostle, and thus God himself, specifically to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice first that we're called upon to preserve this community. We're not called to create it. We're not called to get some fancy uh, committee to make plans to create it. No, no. Paul assumes that this is a reality of the gospel, that there is unity for those who name the name of Christ. It's a unity that has been previously established by Christ's work and is characterized by peace. Peace is that which holds our union with Christ, the basis of our unity with God and his church together. We have peace with God through Christ, period, full stop. Ephesians 2, 14 through 22 says, For he himself is our peace, who made both groups, namely Jews and Gentiles, into one, and he broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two, Jew and Gentile, into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. This unity of the Spirit that Paul is speaking of is the universal gift to the corporate church and to individual members, namely you. This unity is as certain as the unity of the persons of the Trinity and as certain as the unity of God's works. John Stott comments that this unity that Paul speaks of is as indestructible as God himself. Now, in verses 4 through 6, Paul lays out the nature of these things. The body of Christ. The Spirit. Hope of our calling. The Lord Jesus. The faith. Baptism in God. And all those things, Paul says, the nature of these is one. There's a unity. Now, these verses are understood in a variety of ways by many commentators, but for today, I just want you to see what we can be certain of. We can be certain of this. 
The unity that we are called to preserve is like unto the unity of the persons of the Trinity and their fellowship. It's one in nature, just as certainly as there's one church and one spirit. Now we've seen that the unity of the spirit is a universal gift to the church, and it's modeled on God's nature and God's works. This is a comfort to us, for we know that if the church's unity depended on us, it would look hopeless indeed. While this is comforting, Paul intends this exhortation to call us to action. The thrust of his call here to be diligent in 4.3 is something like work hard, spare no effort to preserve the unity of the Spirit. Now, although it's true that the unity of the church is fixed in the heavens, God calls us to display that unity here on earth. To maintain this unity is to maintain it visibly. The pursuit of this unity is not a seasonal thing. We're told in 4.13 that we are to pursue this until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Maintaining this unity is the day-to-day work of the church militant. It's the day-in, day-out toil of the church in this present evil age. It will persist until the kingdom comes in its fullness. This concern for maintaining unity is even reflected in our church's fifth membership vow. Many of you remember this. Remember that vow? Do you submit yourself to the government and discipline of the church to, and promise to study its purity and peace? Right? Purity and peace of the church has to do with this idea of the unity of Christ's body. Now, this unity to which we are called is external proof of internal realities. Jesus prays in John 17, 21, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe you sent me. Now, the world which we seek to win for Christ does not perceive these internal realities that Paul is speaking of in Ephesians 1 through 3. They're as of yet natural humans, spiritually discerned, as Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The stuff that gets us excited, the message of the blessed gospel of God, goes unappreciated and mocked by the world at large. But I do submit to you that the world does understand results. They do understand things that they can see, touch, taste, feel, etc. They understand works. They understand when you give a day's labor to serve the poor. They understand when you fork over a chunk of change to help those in need. They understand that. And the calculus doesn't add up because the general calculus is quid pro quo. They did something for me. They must want something, right? Well, in the kingdom, that is not the calculus of the kingdom. Calculus is, of the kingdom is let your right hand not know what your left hand is doing. Maybe I got hands mixed up, but you get the point. They see something when they see our works. They know not what, but they see something. You give this stuff to me in the name of Jesus and for his glory? What? Well, Jesus tells us that what they see testifies to them that he is from the Father. So having said this, what does it mean when the church of Christ, when we as the church of Christ do not display the unity of the Spirit, when we do not maintain it visibly? If we live in disunity, 
it amounts to a practical denial of what God has made us to be. If we do not maintain visible unity, we in fact are saying that God's nature and work are not united, are not a harmony. It's saying that Ephesians 2.14 is false, that God has not made the two into one man. It's saying that the distinctions between Gentiles and Jews mean something, when in fact the work of Christ is done to make new humanity where there's no Jew or Greek, there's no slave or free, there's no male and female, for we're all one in Christ Jesus. To witness against this unity of Christ's church is shouting out that the unity accomplished by Christ's shed blood on the tree is of no consequence to us. If we fail to maintain the unity of the body, perhaps we're chugging our own little choo-choo train to heaven and we're sitting in maybe the coffee cart. It's not going to get to its intended destination. By our actions, we even lie to ourselves about the unity that Christ has accomplished. Now, Verses 4 through 6 here safeguard us from the unity-at-all-costs approach. We've seen that approach play out as the mainline denominations in the United States one by one go apostate, ordaining or welcoming ministers with unbiblical doctrines of Christ, unbiblical doctrines of Scripture, and unbiblical doctrines of salvation. And, you know, uh, you know within our own flavor of Protestantism, uh, you know, by 1936, uh, the Orthodox Presbyterian churches formed, and the primary reason was they were ordaining people who did not believe in the virgin birth. They were ordaining people who didn't believe that God was three in one, right? 1973, our own denomination is formed. Things happen a little slower in the South, as I realized in the last 10 days. Uh, <laughs> that wasn't a dig, it's just a thing. Um, but in 1973, the PCA pulls out same kinds of concerns. There are, within the you know, PCUSA, Presbyterian Church of the United States of America, they were ordaining people that you know, didn't believe what the Bible taught, right? And so it's not that kind of, hey, you guys got to be, no, no. And interestingly enough, Notice that once you chuck biblical authority in terms of who God is, who we are, how we get to heaven, does heaven exist, all those big questions, once you chuck those and you trust yourself, uh, soon thereafter biblical morality fails. So again, we've got the indicative, what's true of us, what does the Bible teach, and then how do we act as a result? Well, guys, within those same denominations which have gotten rid of biblical standards, uh, well, we also see ethical standards change, right? If you deny the biblical God is revealed in Scripture within a generation or so, you deny God's morality. It's no surprise. More recently, they've added unbiblical doctrines of sexuality to the mix. There's a connection. If you deny the biblical God is revealed in Scripture within a generation or so, you deny that God's morality. Nonetheless, this does not stop denominations from treading on. Uh, perhaps it's because of ministers' pensions that men want to keep it together. And having a pension, I can understand the allure of wanting to cash in on it. But lots of churches stayed together and like, well, we're going to have the liberal wing and we're going to have the conservative wing and we're just going to, we're going to continue to get along. Well, it has never worked for anything except maintaining pensions for their ministers a little while longer as the church continues to dwindle 
because progressive people are smart enough to know that when you can get the same product from either a political party or the Kiwanis, it's a good time to pull the cord and get out. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, you're being really harsh. You just used the word, what was the word? Apostate denominations. Well, I would submit to you to go home after you've read Ephesians' whole book today. Um, I would submit, go home and read the ecumenical creeds of Christendom. Go read the Apostles' Creed. Go read the Nicene Creed. Go read the Athanasian Creed. And ask yourself, their definitions of what it means to be a Christian and that have stuck through all major denominations through all time up until first third of the 20th century pretty clearly put them on the outside of the church. I'm not being uh, uh, unpleasant or unkind here. I'm merely calling out, you've chucked the faith, okay? If people believe that Christ is not God of God, light of light, very God of very God, if you don't believe that he's revealed himself in scripture, you're not a believer. And the call, of course, is God is about the business of deicide. God is about the business of killing all other gods but him. And truth be told, all of us in our own heart of hearts have an own little God. Yes, we want to do things our way. We want to believe things about reality our way. And we want to act our way. And don't get in my way, <laughs> right? God gets up in our business for those that imagine they're righteous, for those that imagine they're doing their own thing. God gets in our business. No, beloved, these verses safeguard against a sinful, haphazard, false unity that lacks any train, lacks any gospel, and therefore lacks a caboose. Any cargo of any use to the world that is dying in their sin and in desperate need of the self-existent triune God of the Bible, who actually saves people from their sin when they come confessing the Lord Jesus. And that same God saves people for himself and makes all things beautiful in his time. Brothers and sisters in Christ, praise God that the unity of the church rests on God's indestructible person and not on our finite persons. God has recreated us for every good work. The gospel alone compels us to action. In our lives, both individually and corporately, let us seek to walk worthily of the high calling which we've received. You can do this because you believe in the gospel. You've been given a new nature. You will sin. You will come back to the foot of the cross. You will confess that what God says about you is true. And you'll receive forgiveness and joy and purpose. It's your only hope in life and death, the gospel that is. And because you have this hope, you participate in Christ's moral life. Walk as Jesus walked. And walking as Jesus walked, strain all of your energies toward the unity of the body, which the Spirit has accomplished and applies to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it gets up in our business. Uh, truth be told, as we seek to be our own gods, as we seek to create reality, imagine who we are, imagine who you are, as we create idols and worship them and get all bent out of shape when you come along and kick them over, uh, we find that we are tired of trying to be our own gods. It's exhausting. We need you, the one true God, to come in and reorganize our lives and 
tell us that we have meaning and value because we're made in your image and we're called saints. Father, we ask that you would bless this tithing that we're about to do and these offerings, that these monies would be used wisely by your church to see the gospel preached, to see the sick and the poor and those that are downtrodden cared for. And we pray, Father, you'd stir that up within us as we seek to walk worthily. We pray in Jesus' name.